Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. How's everybody doing today? This is Ryan Tansom. Thanks for tuning back into the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest's name is Andrew Warner. You may or may not have heard of Andrew so far, but he is the owner of a company called Mixergy where he's done over 1,300 interviews with some of today's biggest business moguls and biggest and most famous entrepreneurs. And how he got there is the interesting story that we kind of dive into because Andrew had started a company with his brother back in the mid 90s selling greeting cards online and they grew like wildfire and Andrew is one determined dude and as he was growing and hustling he thought his main extra strategy was death if you look at his bio on Mixergy however he ended up hitting a wall and he ended up just burning out like I think any normal individual will that just chases the top line dollar amount without thinking about what is this mean to them, their life, and their legacy. So with Mixergy and what he is doing now is building a legacy and building a platform of something that can last without him and after he's gone. And I think at 1,300 interviews that are up for everybody to see, he's doing just that and he's doing one hell of a job. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want to who you want for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with Andrew and his story about how he got to where he is today. How's it going, Andrew? Thanks for coming on the Life After Business podcast. Good. Going great. Well, I am looking forward to uh, our conversation because you've got a very interesting story um, because you built a really successful business early on in your life and you've uh, transitioned into a life after that is uh, Mm -hmm. leaving imprints on a lot of people and a lot of people's businesses but why don't you just kind of kick it off uh, for the listeners that may not uh, know the background um, of the first business that you started why don't you kind of just give us a little bit of a rundown I never know how long to go with that when you say a little bit of a rundown how much so I thought well I watched one of your videos on your website and you were talking that you named your the you named the firm Bradford and uh, and Reed because you thought it was going to be a lawyer. Uh, that people were thinking yes. that they were going to be a lawyer. So, but yet you sold holiday cards. So, how did you start determining that you wanted to sell holiday cards? And what was like? I didn't. I never would have wanted to sell holiday cards. I don't give a rat's <laughs> ass about holiday cards. I hate cards anyway. I mean, except for like a nice thank you card from from time to time. I got into it because I wanted to make money and I thought email newsletters would be the best way to make money. They still are a really good way to make money. I still see people build email newsletter based companies. I thought, great, I'll get someone to subscribe to my newsletter once. I'll have ads in there every time that I send them a message and I'll get to message them, what, once a week, once a day? Actually, it was going to be once a day. So they subscribe to my my newsletter, they get an email every day and along with it, there'll be an ad and I thought, great, this is going to make a killing. And your brother was your partner, correct? My brother was my partner. So you were this, I mean, what was the kind of the dynamics between you and your, you and your brother? 
He was constantly coding things, constantly tinkering, and I was constantly looking for something to sell. I loved selling. I loved talking stuff up. I loved, I loved the business side of business more than I loved anything else in life. And so he would do things like he'd suddenly create a dating site, just coded it himself, dating site, but he hated promoting it. <laughs> or I think he was even creating an email newsletter piece of software, but didn't send out email newsletters, something like that. And me, I was constantly looking for something to sell. I, I wanted to create a, a magazine about success, about biographies of successful people. And it was kind of slow. It never went anywhere. So here I was, a guy who wanted to talk about business and think about business and run the business side of things. And he was a guy who just wanted to code. It was easy to, to merge. And frankly, I saw that someone was building an email newsletter that did well. I said, Michael, can you code this up for, for us and we'll partner up on it? And he said, yeah. And I said, what I'd like is, I want people to be able to subscribe via email. I know it's a small thing, but I'd love, like people to, if they want to join my trivia newsletter, to just email me, trivia at mailbits.com. It was called Mailbits at the time. And as soon as they do, let's add them to the mailing list. Let's make it easy for people to subscribe. And so he coded that up, and this little magical idea of saying email trivia at mailbits.com didn't actually explode. That wasn't the, the onboarding magic that I thought it would be. But we tried a bunch of other things, and one of the things that worked was powering other people's greeting cards. If they created a greeting card, we just had this little code that would allow their audience to send that greeting card to their friends. And what was in it for us was there was a checkbox in that greeting card that we put on for our email newsletters. So you might send out a Happy Monday greeting card to your friend. But while you were sending it out, there was a checkbox that said, also join the Trivia Day mailing list. Oh, and if you joined, then I got my, my subscriber. Your friend got the nice greeting card, the electronic greeting card. And the guy who created the greeting card got to service his user, but also got some viral action on his website because people often didn't just send out those greeting cards to one person. They sent it out to, on average, I think it was like 5.2 people. So now they because of the viral nature of that, I mean, were you a how were you able to get in and like do the sales that you wanted to do? I mean, how were ah, okay. So the sales at first were I would I thought newsletters were all that I wanted to be in, and so I'd see who was advertising in other people's newsletters, and I remember calling them up. There, this this company called Flying Noodle that was advertising in a lot of newsletters nice get name. pasta by mail, right? <laughs> I just looked at them the other day to see if they're still around, and they are still around. Let me see, Flying. Flying Noodle. Flying Noodle, that's a hell of a name. <laughs> he, was, he was kind of a pioneer, the guy behind Flying Noodle. Yeah, the site looks fantastic. Um, and you could get pasta by mail, and it was specialty pasta, and it was kind of quirky, and it was interesting. So he was advertising in email newsletters. He said, no one else cares about news newsletters. I'll be the guy who advertises in them and get these low rates that everyone else is passing up. Meanwhile, he said email is very effective. Everyone always opens up their email eventually, and they'll see my ads. So he was right. So I called him up, and I said, I don't want to sell you. I just see you everywhere. I just want to understand why you're buying all these ads and how it works and what do you see here? And he talked to me. And nice. the reason he talked to me was because he was he loved the space. He loved buying email newsletters. He loved what he was doing. He thought he was smart and he was smart for having discovered this. So he's happy to talk about how smart he was. And also, I'm sure in the back of his head, he said, if this guy Andrew does well, then I can, I can advertise in his email newsletter. And so he did. He became one of my first sponsors. Maybe how'd you decide how you, how are you going to charge him? 
Um, I asked him what he was paying other people. I asked him what he saw that made sense. I asked him what he what he thought was fair. We came up with sixty five dollars a day for all the newsletters was going to be my ad rate. I think I don't even know how many people I had, but I basically said, "Look, if it doesn't work out, I'm okay with it because I'm just trying to figure out what the number is. Just be honest with me. Don't lie to me. Mm-hmm. So if it does if it doesn't work out, if it does work out, don't tell me it didn't work out and lie to me that way. <laughs> right." I'll give you your money back, but ultimately you'll be screwing me. But I also said, I'll do this with other people. Then once I got Flying Noodle as a sponsor, I, I had this calendar with all the days of the week on it. And I crossed off one of the days of the week, the first one on my list. And I said, you're my first sponsor. Uh, or I, in my head, I said, you're my first sponsor. I don't think he cared. Um, then I went to other people and I said, look, Flying Noodle's buying. You can see they're buying. Take and run with that places. ticket, right? <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> Take and run with that ticket, that first client, right? Yeah, exactly. Show it to other people and get them to sponsor too. And they did. And one of those people was a guy who eventually sold to Sony and he was smart. He said, Andrew, I can see that the very first ad that people read in a newsletter just stands out as being different. Like, what the hell? Andrew's now taking money. Who is this guy that Andrew's taking money from? Right. So he said, I want to buy an ad, but I want to buy the first one. And in fact, to get the very first day's ad, I will buy a bunch of others too. Oh, really? That's really smart also. So I, instead of selling in, I forget when it was, instead of selling in, uh, in May, I started selling in April for in April. So he got April ads ahead of Flying Noodle. Flying Noodle didn't care. No one else cared. <laughs> you know, everyone has this thing I, I, I realized at the time that they care about, that matters to them. To this guy, being first mattered. I'm sure it helped him, but it wasn't, it wasn't super big. That's awesome. So what was the, what was the time span? Uh, you know, I mean, you guys grew exponentially. I mean, you, as you kind of say on your about page on Mixergy and I mean the rapid growth, especially with the viral nature of your product. And I mean, where were you spending your di- your time? What was your day looking like? Can I like? curse here or are you? Yeah, that- dude, go for it. I remember everything was such a struggle. I would have to sell ads in the newsletters. I'd have to figure out what I would write, write the newsletters myself. I'd have to figure out how to write the newsletters. I said to my brother, Michael, we can't keep doing this the way we're doing it. It has to be more of a machine. We have to have a machine. It has to eat pennies and shit dollars. How do we get that? <laughs> yes. The pennies go in one side and dollars come out the other. And that thing that happens in the middle, that will be our headache, how to build it. But it, that's the only headache. We build it and then we get to watch it do its own, its job. It, have you ever uh, read the book Snowball? By no. Wow. Oh yeah, about Warren Buffett, where he, he actually had the pinball machines that he would take that one where he was he was eating nickels and shitting out dollars, and then he was buying the other pinball machines with those dollars. And this was Warren Buffett doing it, or one of the companies he bought? Warren Buffett. It was one of his first companies. So in the book I'm Snowball, not. it was actually like probably one of the first couple snowflakes as he was rolling that thing down the hill. So for me, what happened was I started paying people. 10 cents every time that little form, that greeting card form that we created was used because I knew that I was going to get on average one or two, one out of every two people to subscribe to my newsletter. That meant that it was going to cost me 20 cents to get someone new on my newsletter. I knew how much money I would make in advertising off of them per day and I knew how, much, how many days they could stay. Actually, in my mind, I imagined they'd stay for half a year. It turned out, actually, people stay even longer. It was, there was a lot of uh, inertia in there. What was, the, what was the average lifetime value of a customer? Or the average? I don't know what it was, but it was over, it was over half a year. They wow. were just sticking around, yeah. That's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Go ahead. And I think that in, for many of us, 
staying subscribed is still a thing. We still stay subscribed to newsletters. If someone subscribes to your podcast, unless the app that they're subscribed in automatically stops downloading episodes, they're going to keep downloading all the episodes. Inertia is really big. People just keep doing what they're doing and don't take action to stop. Um, so you took advantage of that, obviously. Yeah, I didn't even know. I thought actually um, I was being cons- – I thought I was actually being optimistic <coughs> by saying people stay, stay subscribed for half a year. And I actually – I might have even needed them to only sub- stay subscribed for 60 days. It wasn't anything outrageous. Hmm. But I was paying $0.10 cents per, per person. So then um, this guy, Alan Stein – I love, I'm saying his name here, hoping that I'll meet him. I'm like, I've been trying for years to reconnect with him, but I don't know where, where he disappeared to. But he was ta- talking to me about co-registration. He had an office here in Mountain View. I came from New York just to see him uh, in Mountain View. And it was cool to see Silicon Valley. It was cool to see what he was doing. And one of the things that I learned from him was, he said, co-registration is this thing where when someone signs up for one thing, there's another checkbox for something else and people will pay to be that checkbox, that something else checkbox. And he said, look, when people subscribe to my newsletter, there's a checkbox that says also subscribe to other companies' newsletter. He goes, other company then pays me a a buck or two or whatever every time someone Hmm. subscribes to their newsletter. And I've had people on Mixergy say that they still do this to this day, newsletter subscribers who, I mean, people who have newsletters who when a user signs up for their newsletter, instead of a confirmation page that says, go check your inbox, I, I sent you an, an email, the confirmation says, do you also want these other newsletters? And these other newsletters pay just kind of going like per this. subscriber. Yeah. That's interesting. So as you guys are building this machine. Well, hang on a sec. Sorry. Yeah. I was paying 10 cents every time someone used my form. I started paying, I started getting paid a dollar Plus, actually, a buck fifty minimum every time someone signed up to one of my advertisers' newsletters. No so shit. I was paying a buck and getting a buck fifty, eating eating dimes, shitting buck and a half. That's that's big. That's that's super awesome. So how like in that when you said like in between there when you talk about your the headache that you got to figure out about how to grow, kind of walk us through like what what were some of the things that you did? I mean, because you that. That, that grew very fast. So like how did you handle it? So then we had a machine in place and now our goal was how do we get more people to send out greeting cards? And the way we did it was we gave a commission to people who referred top affiliates to us. So you may not have a good uh, greeting card site, but maybe you know someone else who does. I'll give you a URL to give to them and if they sign up for, to, to use my software – you're going to get paid every time they get paid. And so you, you get doing paid. affiliate marketing way before a lot of people were. Yeah, and affiliate on top of affiliate. I don't even think people do that right now. They mm-hmm. should. Giving someone a commission for bringing a big affiliate is, is really powerful. So you'd have these people go and post uh, on, on message boards. This is a crazy affiliate program. You should go and sign up and create your greeting card site using Andrew's software. And hmm. so they were promoting us in places that we didn't know about or places that I felt a little too skeeved out by, frankly. Some mm-hmm. of them, you know, some of these message boards for how to get rich. I, I even though it would make me rich, I can't fully bring myself to go. There. The heebie jeebies kind of deal, right? It's yeah. yeah. So um what was the goal? I mean, like, because you know, you're a driven sales guy. I mean, that's why you started the business. To get rich. I wanted to get rich and leave 
a company that would outlast me. Did you have a dollar amount in your mind from revenue or like in the bank account? Like what was I did. I wanted to have a million dollars in the bank account. I said, let's be conservative. How long did it take you to get that? Um, I don't know. Once we got going, it was like three years, maybe two years. Okay. So then once you hit that, did you did you like push the goal line farther or what was the kind of the I next? didn't set up another number. I just kept trying to grow where we were. And what and what was the time frame from when you guys started the business to the ultimate uh sale? five years. Oh no no kidding, it was only five years, huh? Yeah. So on your website I would have wanted it to be fifty. I was bummed. I, I didn't realize oh, really? it at the time. Fifty would have been too little. I would have wanted it to last for hundreds of years if I could. Or at least a hundred years, yeah. So you said on your website you said your the exit strategy was death, right? Which by the way, as an entrepreneur and a lot of entrepreneurs that are that listen to this, that is because it's their baby. I mean, like you literally have a, a canvas to like wrap your personality and all your morals and all the vision throughout yeah. your company. And then plus look at the people whose businesses we admire. Look at how long they're in the, in the business. You don't really see Jeff Bezos leaving Amazon anytime soon, right? Look at the companies that that keep growing. They outlive their founders, Apple, Microsoft, but go back even further. Go to McDonald's, which used to be a highly respected, highly um, admired company. Still outlived. Forget the founders. The founders were really replaced by Ray Kroc, who's the, the guy who really put it on the map. Outlived them. You want that. You want that kind of experience. You want a Ford, Ford Motor Company. You don't want to be one of these guys who had a company that did well and then disappeared. So what what happened in that? Was there a triggering event? Was there something that? It was I mean, a bunch of things. It was um, I worked myself too hard so I couldn't think creatively. That was the worst of it. And I have a tendency to do that, to go all out and not stop until I'm I'm burnt out and I have to watch out. Frankly, I don't know if I should have done this interview with you. I should have just taken more time off. Um, as we were talking before the baby started, I had a baby. I, I should have just taken a month off. Fuck it. Disappear so, for a month. Life is going to be okay. Things actually continue to to, ro- to go, right? It's, it's So do you have like a like – a- phantom anxiety i I've, I've termed it that i don't even know if it, that exists but when there's not this perpetual motion no I'm, I'm okay when there isn't um i just always want more i want more and more and more of everything like i'm a runner i always want to go further more distance one of the things that i realize is i hate basketball and i hate so many other sports that my friends want to play with me and i'd like to be there and be a part of their 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 experience i have friends who invite me to basketball they say don't worry you don't have to be good we're just gonna have a good time and i'd have a great time with them if we were all having drinks but i know that my <laughs> sport is not basketball because i like to just go further just keep going further so i'll go run I'll bike ride. When I was living in D.C., I'll row. I know myself. I want to see how far can I row this thing on the Potomac? How far can I get when I run? That's, that's, the, that's the problem that I have with, with work. I want to just keep seeing how far. And so you were asking me after the million, did I have another goal? Maybe I should have. Instead, my goal was let's see how far I can run. So how let's did you know you were burnt out then? Bank account. Huh? How did you know you were burnt out? I mean, was it, was it like, was, did you have a specific personal event or was it just like, I, I saw myself not able to think anymore, not not think as creatively, not be as determined, not be as ambitious. That was that was a problem. That was one problem. Another problem was a lot of our companies, um, a lot of our advertisers started having financial issues. So they were having financial issues, scaled back what they were paying us or what they want, the amount of uh, the number of customers they were going to get from us. So that was another issue. There were lots of issues, lots of little things 
But I would say the biggest one was I wasn't in the right frame of mind. I wasn't thinking as determined, determinedly. I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking as ambitiously as I usually do. What was the conversation with your brother? I mean, did he kind of see the writing on the wall? I mean, was was there? Because I think I mean, we were both ready to be done. He was yeah. a little less burned out than me because he had outside interests. I thought he was mistaken for having outside interests. Like he'd go snowboard over a weekend and come back on Monday. I think this guy is not taking life seriously enough. He's going to go snowboarding. Work, 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 motherfucker, work. <laughs> I, can, I can relate to, to, to some of that. So, I mean, when you when you found yourself kind of in this this rock in a hard spot, I mean, but yet you want legacy and you, is this legacy, uh, pursuit of legacy, is this new since the, the last couple? I always wanted it. I wanted it all. I, I feel like I'd still like more money and I'd still like to leave a legacy. The people that we admire aren't the ones who just live life on and have a good life and go away. They have a good life and also have a meaningful life that outlives them. I was looking at your website. Look at the books that you've got on there. You've got the House of Morgan. Is this you or your dad? Yeah, this is you. The House of Morgan, right? About J.P. Morgan. The guy created a legacy. I know. Wild, wild legacy. His life is still being studied by you. A hundred, a thousand years after he's dead, I believe people will still be influenced by his life. Look at another book, Think and Grow Rich. Here's a guy who put down a methodology that will outlive him, that has outlived him by far, right? That's what we want. And so why not have that? So as you, okay, so a couple questions about that because 100% agree with you. I mean, Pierpont Morgan, first of all, bailed New York out of bankruptcy three times. Like not a lot of people can say that they've done that, right? <laughs> I mean, that's something that you can put in the book and everybody's going to wonder why. Say the financial, the, the, uh, the financial side of the U.S. Right, right. And then, so... Were you so burnt out that you didn't couldn't figure out a way to turn that business? I couldn't care enough. I couldn't think That's enough. I don't even know if I'd use the word burned out. Maybe burned out is too dramatic. But I definitely lost my edge because of exhaustion. Got it. Because I couldn't think clearly. That's a problem. So then you say that uh, you spent a lot of time off cycling and running. I mean – explains kind of the transition into like no longer waking up and learning how to take the pennies the shit done the dollars what what is what's your way of i was i was in a funk and wasn't thinking sharply enough my friend at the time was doing the avon walk and she'd go to train every day for the avon walk and we were working together so i'd go and and like while she was on the treadmill i'd try the treadmill a little bit and then as she was walking down the street one day in manhattan she said I know you don't you never felt comfortable in a gym, but check this out. Someone has this gym that's exclusive. You go in a gym, no one's out there in the gym unless it's with a trainer. So it's like you could be you by yourself there or maybe one other person with their trainer. You get your own locker room, so no one will see my penis because I was very like <laughs> actually wasn't so much embarrassed by someone seeing my penis, though that would be a problem. It was like seeing my hairy legs. I didn't feel comfortable going in a gym because of that. So those little insecurities of being in a gym and having somebody see me naked, going into the gym itself and having somebody work out who was experienced and I know what I was doing. Someone carrying Just, around a big huge jug of water, like a gallon full of Oh, I didn't even think of that. That definitely <laughs> freaked me out because then they were like more experienced taking it more seriously they're more alpha male in many ways so she introduced me to this place it was called dimensions it costs i don't it costs a lot every time you walk in the place it was like 120 bucks easy right and actually in retrospect that's not that much money but it, so maybe it was more than that it was expensive and it was in these 
beautiful buildings in, in midtown Manhattan. So I signed up for it. And the guy who I was working with, before making me lift weights, would make me run on the treadmill. So I was kind of walking on the treadmill with my friend, kind of running with this guy. And then I started rollerblading. And I realized that I could like try to push myself to rollerblade a little bit further and feel a little like I accomplished something, push myself to run on the treadmill more and feel like I could do something. And I remember being on the, on the rollerblades and saying to myself, if I could complete this one circle of Central Park, the small circle, then I could overcome my business problems. And I would. And then I feel, all right. And then the next time it was, if I could outrun this person, then I could outrun my problems. And I would. <laughs> I feel like, all right. And usually I wasn't literally outrunning them. What would happen is I would say, if I could outrun them, and it would be a slowpoke who I was trying to outrun. And the slowpoke would eventually, like, you know, go sit down eventually. But I would keep on running. And so I've outrun them. And that was like a, a, a message to my head, which is eventually everyone else will give up. But as long as you don't give up, you will still make it. You will finish. And so those little wins helped me out tremendously. Those little wins made me feel like I could do something and made me feel accomplished. And because they made me feel like I could do something in a world that I felt really unsure of and out of place in. What and made I you feel unsure out of place? In the gym and in sports and in running and anything and being in Central Park at all without like some work or some purpose. So did you find the purpose in those activities? I mean, you're finding kind of like the... I found my my strength in them. I felt like I'm, I have accomplished something at the end of a run. And then I would try to run before work. And so I would feel accomplished in the morning. I can't believe I just did three miles. And then go into work feeling like a winner who just done three miles. You so know? Do, you, do, you, do you listen to music while you run or do you just let your mind go? What, 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 what's going on? What's the dialogue? Uh, at the time I listened to music or I might have, I don't remember, but I definitely listened to something. I might have listened to like audio books from Audible or something. Mm -hmm. Nice. So... Um, as you're taking the time off and you're kind of reinventing yourself in, in between the six inches between your ears or what where did the transition go about what you you know, having conversations in your head about what your next legacy is gonna be or what you want that to be? I mean how how's the vision kind of I didn't want to do anything. I really was literally in the places at some point. You know, we sold the last piece of the last company of the company, of the previous company, and I said, I think I'm good. I think I pushed myself to a place where I'm good in life. I could, first of all, I remember being in, in Venice Beach and seeing this guy who was selling trinkets and he was half asleep <laughs> or maybe fully asleep. Not a care in the world. I couldn't sleep at night. And this guy was just sitting there, didn't care if somebody bought his stuff or not. And I looked at the peace in his eyes and I said, I think I could live on so little that I want to have that kind of peace. So if I have to, worst case, I could always have, that's what I'm aspiring to, the piece that this guy has who's selling trinkets on, on the Venice Beach boardwalk. But I had a little more than he did. So I got myself um, a place on the Venice boardwalk, just like right overlooking it. And actually, it wasn't overlooking it at first. It was in a building that overlooked it, but the apartment I had wasn't overlooking it. So I remember going to the manager and saying, I want one that overlooks the water. And the guy said, someone else has it. I said, I want you to tell them that I will pay them to get out of their place. So that I can have um, Did he do it? Yeah, part of me thought, you know what he's going to do? He's going to tell them, guys, you can't stay here anymore because we already committed this to somebody else. 
and pocket the money himself. But I said, even better, <laughs> even better. It worked. I don't care because I'll, I'll be with him longer than I'm with them. This was a place where people could stay on a monthly basis. Got it. So, um, so not how, quite how long were you doing that? I mean, how long did you stay there? And what, like, I stayed there for the summer, maybe a little. No, I stayed there for the winter. And then one summer, so from October till about July, and then one summer came around, I said, I want to go run with the bulls in Pamplona. No shit. Did yeah. You really? and, and just backpack through Europe a little bit. So um, I had my ticket, and I met this girl just before going. And I said, you know what? Here's a crazy thing. Do you want to come to Paris with me? I'm going to Paris, and then I'm going to go <laughs> run with the bulls in Pamplona. And she said, that is nuts. Let's do it. So she came. Uh, she didn't come with me she couldn't get away from work but she came like two days after so i got to explore a little bit then she came um then we broke up in paris which sucked because being in paris after you're supposed to like get together with someone in paris (laughs) i know it's so bad i actually think paris is a horrible place to get together with someone they're not like the i i just don't think it's the it's the friendliest place for that um so that that happened, but then I did go to Pamplona and I ran with the bulls a couple of times, three times actually. Good all that all that running in uh, Central Park paid off, huh? <laughs> you know what? I didn't even think of it as a running experience. But here's the thing, I I got like really disillusioned by that experience. I did my research. I knew where you stand to get enough action that you can really <laughs> run your your life, a little bit. not so much that you lose your life. And then I stand in this spot. And I see people are so scared they're pretending to be drunk so that when they get kicked out, they could tell their friends, I was so drunk, they kicked me out of the, the running with the bulls. I could tell. I could see the people were there and they were like all hopped up. I, for some reason, I just had these eyes where I just noticed the world around me in more clarity, maybe because I thought I could die at any minute. Um, <laughs> and the, the guys who ran the organization, the, pe- the local uh, police, pushed us out of that spot. Because they wanted to create a better photo experience. They wanted to create a better, maybe safer experience for everyone else. They just moved you out. And I realized we're all pawns in their event. This is No one ever says, I went to Pamplona and I had this delicious food. No one says, the best city I ever went to was Pamplona. There's only one thing you talk about in Pamplona, the running of the bulls. This is the one thing this poor little town has. And I say poor little town because if you want to pee, they don't even have bathrooms for all the people who come in from out of town. I mean, really, they just can't accommodate. This is their big thing. And so they're not going to let you experience it your way. They need to move you like a pawn in their chess game because this is what matters to them. So I realized I can't go into an experience just because um, Hemingway had it. I can't go into an experience because someone said this was going to be the like a dangerous or fun experience. It's always going to be their experience unless I make it up myself. And so I was in Pamplona for a few days, and then I just said, all right, I think I'm done. I paid for my hotel, but I, I'm ready to leave. And so I met these two guys who happened to be going to Madrid, and I went to Madrid with them. And then I just kept exploring Europe. How long were you gone in Europe doing that? About three months. And I, could, I had an open-ended ticket. I could stay as long as I wanted. I was staying in hostels because I never had that kind of experience. And I remember starting out being in these packed hostels with people from all over the world. And by the end, I really would just have a whole hostel to myself. Literally. No kidding. I was in Harlem uh, in the Netherlands, a giant place. Nobody else stayed in it because who says I can't wait to go to Harlem in, in the Netherlands, right? It's just <laughs> this little town. 
But in the beginning of the summer, people would stay in all these little towns. They were, everything was busy. Towards the end, I felt like, all right, this has actually gone a little bit longer than it should. It's time to go do something else. So where, where did the seed or the, the, the breath of Mixergy come into play? I was then back thinking I'm never going to do anything again, but I didn't know where to go back. So I went back to New York for a little bit. New York was a little cold. So I went to LA for a little bit thinking I'll go back to New York. I rented a place there. I'd go every morning and just kind of sit by the water and read the news and see what was going on. And I'd see people doing things and I'd, think I think I'm ready to do something. I think there's something happening. And at first I thought, you know, I'm going to keep it so simple. I'm just going to get a card table. And I, I went out and I bought a card table so I could do something on the beach. Just like sell. I said, I'm going to go. Go back to that trinkets, places. right? Sorry? Go back to those trinkets like the guy was selling. <laughs> yeah. Except for me, it was going to be, I'm going to hustle from the start to the top because starting with nothing was very exciting. So I went and I got my, 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 my table and I went and I got, I had like this like $3,000 suit that I still had. <laughs> so I was sitting there at this $20 table, $3,000 suit. I was going to just be the guy who gave you business advice and start from scratch and build it up. And the truth is, I'm embarrassed to say this, I, I think if I would have realized where this story was going, I wouldn't have started it. <laughs> I could never set up my table there. I never set up the table. Really? Why? I think it was just too exposed. It was too... Anyone who saw me might have thought that I was like a failure, I guess. I don't know. I think there was a, definitely a part of a part of it feeling too embarrassing to do it but it also felt artificial too that even before I did it I went and I paid a guy on the boardwalk to teach me how to do it it was a psychic I said let me ask you a question I want to I want to come here and sell can you tell me how it works and he goes no I don't have time to tell you how it works I said I'm gonna pay you I said okay and the whole thing he said was, just go to the internet. He didn't know I had any internet experience. He just said, look, the future's in the internet. What are you doing here? Just go to the internet. It was just like everything was go to the internet. But can I just set up a table? He goes, yeah, you could set up a table. No one's going to kick you, but go to the internet. So I realized I was doing something that was a little artificial, that was not who I wanted to be. And I also felt like a dork doing it. So I never set up that table. I bought my chair. I bought my folding table. And I think it went to the garbage pretty new. So... You know, what What about you felt like a failure? I mean, you say going, you know, being exposed and you felt like a failure. Man, what, I mean, you, you technically sold your business, you got the money that you wanted to and you're... But then everyone would have to know that or who was coming to the table or passing me by. I, I think that's a little part of it for sure. The truth is that before that, I pushed my boundaries a lot. I risked talking to women who I would have been embarrassed to talk to before and risked failure in ways that I, I wasn't naturally comfortable, like failure with women I wasn't naturally comfortable with, failure in running I wasn't naturally comfortable with, failure in like running with the bulls and getting hurt, or like even like breaking skin, skinning my knee would have been like a risk. I risked all that and and all the humiliation and, it, and was immune to it and to some degree I thought. 
So it must have been more than just feeling like a dork and not being able to get past that feeling. I think it also was just that this was artificial, that this was me trying to start from scratch in a way that was just not authentic to who I was. I really was more of a digital person. I really was more of an online person. This really was some kind of made up experience that really didn't wouldn't have worked. So did you set up like a, I mean, quote unquote, virtual table then? I mean, obviously you kind of moved into that, what that kind of seed was, right? I mean, you, what I did was I started organizing events. I thought I need something that has the same virality as the online greeting cards. You know, you with the greeting card, you send it out to one person, like a regular paper greeting card. You send it out to one person, that person gets it, it goes in the garbage or it goes on their mantle for a few days and then it goes in the garbage. With online greeting cards, you're not sending it to one person. It's so easy if I'm going to send one to my brother to also CC my sister. And then while I'm doing that, let's get my parents in and so on. So people would do it to an average of 5.2 people or some number like that. I like that. That meant that 5.2 people would have to come back to the website to pick up their greeting cards. And some number of them were going to, probably two were going to send out greeting cards of their own. And so the thing just kept going and going and going. So I thought... How about if I do events and it's going to be an event where it's me and other people hosting? Because if it's me hosting, it's just my guests who can come. But if it's me and four other people, if we each invite five people, then we have 30 people total, 25 guests and five hosts. That means that we have 30 people minimum who are at this event. Then we can get someone else from the event to co-host the next one and they could bring five of their people and now this mailing list keeps growing. And, and so... From that, I'll have a big pool of people who are going to want to learn, who are going to want to get exposed to business education, and I could be like the next Napoleon Hill. I like it. I like it a yeah. lot. So, I never got to that point. I never. I, all I did was do the events. I never got to the point where we talk about like the Napoleon it, Hill stuff. Was it actually mix, I mean, Mixergy at that point? I mean, it was it, called something else. A friend of mine um, called it Circle of Five for a little bit. Because it was five people each bringing their circles, and so there's the circle of five becomes bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was looking. Once it became like my thing, I said, "I want my own name. I don't want, I don't want to ever have to battle someone else to get the name back, or to like Mailbits." I think there was someone else who had the name Mailbits, and they said, "You know what? I don't care. It's a mail, and it's bits in the mail, and it's not that big a deal." But I said, it could have been. I'd much rather have my own word that no one else can claim ownership of. Which I, which, yeah, I, I love it because, I mean, the mixer, the, the energy. I mean, it, there's the meetups and the stuff, though, the format that you're doing on, I think it's it's running rampant. I mean, people are doing those things all day long. And I, what's what's interesting, I think, of what how, you're, how you've evolved. And, I mean, first of all, you being the next Napoleon, I mean, the amount of data and the amount of – interviews that you've amassed is spectacular i mean so i'd say i mean i don't know anywhere else where you can go get that much information about business other than taking a library and just reading constantly yeah. one, one person by one person though and you're not getting the dialogue that you've been yeah. evolving so how how did you kind of switch into that because i you know I, you had mentioned too in your um on the, on the about page about literally you're getting burnt out right and i mean there's people that are professional networkers and everybody wonders like what do they actually do <laughs> where you've evolved? My in- vision was going to be I do these events and then people come to some kind of 
not a conference, not a seminar, but something like that. At the time I was, because I had free time, I was also volunteering again for Dale Carnegie and Associates. When I was in mm-hmm. school, I read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I loved it so much. I went and knocked on the door of Dale Carnegie and Associates. I said, I want to work for you guys for free. And they took me in and they, I worked for them and took their class. And, um, and when I had this extra time, I went back and I said, look, I'm an experienced Dale Carnegie person. Can I volunteer here and help out? And they had me volunteer, and I I volunteered to help teach the the, the class that came out of the How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, actually, that the book came out of. Anyway, I thought, great, I'll do something like that. I'll teach something like that. And Napoleon Hill, I used to listen to his old uh, recordings. And he used to talk about going into restaurants and giving talks, going into like coffee shops and giving talks in the most random places. He said, you just start out and you keep talking and talking until people understand and are moved and are changed. And I thought I'd get to do that at the events, but I never did. What I did, though, was um, get advice from someone who said, you should tell the world who's coming to your events. It was Lynn Langett who worked at Microsoft, and I kind of did a party with them. And she said, you need to get the word out about who's coming to the event so more people come. So I thought, I'll interview the people who are coming so people get to see them. And then I interviewed one person, um, Michael Durao. She was a chiropractor who was incredible at SEO. He was like really well known in the search and <laughs> optimization world. So I interviewed him and then I interviewed other people and then I just fell in love with it. What's your favorite part about interviewing people? Getting to ask the things I'm genuinely curious about. What do you think that what tops your charts on the, the the things that you're generally curious about? Um, it's always different. Sometimes I get curious about people's marriages. Sometimes I get curious about um, about depression. Whatever it is that's in my mind, you can't really just walk up to a stranger and ask random questions without getting hit. I was going to say, you can, you just don't know what the repercussions are going to be. I had a guest on and I I said, let me see your girlfriend. I can't just say that in regular life. She happened (laughs) to be behind the camera and naked. But uh, I didn't know she was naked. I was going to say, well, no wonder you asked. But you can't just say that. Let me see who you're married to. It's just kind of a weird, you have to, you have to say it in a more gentle way. But in an interview, you can just come out and say what you're, what you're thinking. That person is, um, James Altucher. So he, I know him well enough that he'll, he loves those kind of questions. Well, his, one of his book or not his book. Well, I actually read a book where he was in it, talk, talked about all of his kind of like crazy experience that he had. And mm-hmm. then his podcast is actually one of the reasons I started. Mm-hmm. So it is it, his personality. He's very authentic to himself. I respect it a lot. Yeah. So the one, one of the interesting things about what you've done with Mixergy, which, so a lot of our listeners, I mean, they're, they're trying to figure out like where they fit with their business and their life. How do you balance that emotional, hey, this is who I am versus, okay, I've got a business that kicks out cash, right? And like, Oh, I see. How do you separate yourself from the yeah, business? Yeah, I mean, do you have any advice? I haven't done that really well here at Mixergy, but I did do it well at, uh, at Mailbits, and I did it intentionally. My favorite entrepreneurship, my favorite professor in college was a guy who was a real entrepreneur who taught entrepreneurship who gave us this book by um, um, Michael Gerber, The E-Myth Revisited. Yep. And it talked about the problem where an entrepreneur does something, then he does everything. Then he passes one of his tasks on to someone else is the story that he tells. And I think the story was like, he passes on the boxing of supplies or boxing of the end product to someone else. And the person doesn't box properly. 
And he thinks, you know what? This person's an idiot. It's so much easier for me to just do it myself. So he takes it back on. And he does the same thing with every task in the business. And he says, your job as an entrepreneur is to be clear about what those tasks are and to find a way to pass it on to someone else. And I did that. And I think that's still really important. And John Warlow does the same thing. He talks about that. Systemize it to the point where other people can do it. Make sure that the product you sell is consistent enough that you can pass that to someone else and have them sell it. And I think that's all really good advice. So then what I've seen with a lot of people that are more on the serial entrepreneurs, such as yourself, where they really find almost their next, you know, really who they are in their next business, because I don't know if it's this like, hey, this financial burden's off of me. I've kind of, I've hit these benchmarks or something like that. I mean, have you, have you found that journey within Mixergy and now you're kind of just living, you know, through the interviews and stuff like that? I mean, I'm just kind of... What, what's the partially I'm doing the interviews myself because um, I used to think about passing it on to other people, but I always wanted to be better known than I am. I think that um, I think everyone should do something that's public facing. Almost everyone. I could understand some people just not being that, not that it doesn't fit their personality. But if it fits your personality even a little bit, I think it's worth doing. I'll give you a reason why. We wanted to add this alert to our site to make it easier for people to get alerts every time they subscribe, every time we publish a new episode of Mixergy. Mm-hmm. And there was this company that offered it for free. And I said, why are we integrating something for free? I don't know what this guy's business model is. So I emailed the company and I said, how are you offering it for free? Being a little suspicious. So he responded back. He said, basically, we sell data. So I emailed back and I said, you mean you're going to email data about my website or in the aggregate? And the response was, hey, Andrew, I just saw that it was you. I'm going to take over for our customer support person. And I want to tell you, I've been listening to Mixergy for a long time. Let me be open with you about our model. Our model is we can potentially in the future start selling data about your your site's traffic to other people. Here's how it could work, but I don't know yet. I got straight talk direct from the person who ran the company because he knew me. I think we all need to have that. And in the old days, people would. In my free time, I used to go to all those old clubs, the Rotary Club, the Kiwanis Clubs. I went to one meeting of all of them just to see what it was like. And people who used to do business in the old, the old olden times, in the 50s, and, and I, I think even after that, they used to go to these clubs and they would get well-known by being supportive, by taking on leadership roles, by mm-hmm. presiding over meetings, um, by organizing events for multiple clubs to meet each other. That's how they would get well-known. And so people, if they'd knock on someone's door, they'd know who they were. If their employee went out and knocked on someone's door, their employees would know who they were. We don't have that. The way we do it now is by doing publicly facing things. And an interview program like mine is one good way to do it. Another way is to blog publicly. Another way is to go to Snapchat. I'm seeing people kill it with Snapchat that way. I think it's important to do it, and I like doing it uh, publicly like that. And so I, I don't, I'm not ready to pass that on to someone else. You know, I know you got to kind of get running here. What yep. you know, if there's if there's one thing that you can leave our listeners that we haven't really talked about through the different journeys that you've got, I mean, what what would the one piece of advice be that uh, you'd leave us with? Um, you know what one. Th- there's so much, and I don't know where they are, so it's hard to give advice without knowing what people... It's like dispensing medicine without knowing what hurts first. <laughs> so I'll give something that I think is universally true. I think more people should be doing interviews. And I especially think interviews 
not blogging, not anything else, because we need to learn from other people in a way that allows us to ask follow-up questions and probing questions. I think you can learn a lot from a, from reading David's book, The Trust Edge, but imagine if you could sit down with him for an hour and just have a conversation over dinner. You'd learn more. But imagine even further if instead of having a conversation where you feel like you have to contribute to the conversation by talking about the meal, by asking how his day was, by telling you how your day was, imagine if you had the whole hour to do nothing but say, hey, you know what? Actually, compassionate people that I know of aren't very trustworthy. They actually come across as very inse- insecure. What do you say about my friend Steve? And then have him explain why Steve is an outlier or how Steve is doing it wrong, right? That you could only get full knowledge like that from someone else by talking to them, by probing them, by asking them questions. Frankly, it would suck for me if everyone did interviews because I started doing <laughs> interviews long before anyone else was doing interviews with business people, right? Long before, there's one other guy, Gregory Gallant, who was doing it, and then he gave up soon after I got in, maybe because I was doing too many of them, maybe because he had something else going on in his life. I don't know. I still love his old interviews, but I then became the only guy doing it, and everyone was listening just to me, and now you're doing it, and everyone else is doing it, so it would suck for the rest of the world to be doing it because eventually – the attention gets spread too thin and all our audiences shrink. And I'm still recommending it. And the reason I'm recommending everyone do interviews is because it's for they're going to get changed for the better. You and I now feel more bonded because you've taken such an interest in me for the last hour that I feel like I, I know you even though I did most of the talking. I know I care about you because I did more of the talking. You got to learn hopefully something useful because you got me to do more of the talking. You can't get this conversation. You can't get this kind of bonding, this kind of learning, this kind of of any any of what we got from the experience in any other way. So everyone who's listening to me should do an interview and they don't have to publish it as a podcast, though that's great. They could just ask their boss for an interview and then take the 10 best ideas and post them on their Facebook page. Ask their boss for an interview and then take the key ideas at the end of the conversation after a lunch interview. Say, you know what? I just hear the five things that you told me that I was most moved by. Can I record them for Snapchat and publish it that way? I don't know what the format is, but I do know that the conversation is important. I absolutely love it. That is a huge advice. And I think even our listeners who are who are entrepreneurs and owners think that they need to know all the answers so they don't do enough of that. I think actually those are the, the people that probably should and would learn the most out of doing something like that. Cool. Andrew, right. thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it very much. You bet. And anyone who's listening to me who wants more of this or wants to see what my interviews look like, I'd love for them to go to whatever podcast app they like, subscribe to Mixergy. It's M-I-X-E-R-G-Y. Mix like the mixers that I used to organize and Ergy because there's a lot of freaking energy as you guys can tell. Any other way that people can get a hold of you? Uh, Is that the number one way that you want people to... I don't want them to get a hold of me. People who are smart enough will know how to get a hold of me. <laughs> Email addresses are super easy to get. My office is super easy to 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 find, and I love to have people here. I won't give it out, but I do know that they will find it if they want it. I love it. Thanks for coming cool. on the Thanks, show. Thanks, Ryan. Yep, see you, Andrew. Bye, everyone. Bye.